Lord God, we come before you and recognize that you've prepared our hearts in the midst of the singing and the way you've arranged the tones and worked through the instrumentalist and through the vocalist. You put us in this place, not just through prayer, but through singing to hear from you. And that's the perfect place to be, Father. That you would speak to us in a moment like this where our heart's ready to receive it. So God, we ask that you would do specifically that. I I don't know what requests came to you. They're intimate and precious to you. We pray that you would work your perfect will in the midst of the requests that were uttered, both by people here physically and those who are watching on their televisions and on their laptops and on their phones. God, that you would accomplish your purpose in the midst of our request. We ask for that in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, would you take it out and go to Luke chapter 10. If you have it maybe electronically or maybe you have a hard copy. If you're watching at home, we encourage you to download the notes so that you can follow along that way. Maybe you have it with you here in the auditorium as well. So Luke chapter 10 is a really, really familiar story. Um, Stepping back into the parables, if you haven't been here um, and during the parable series, we started them back in, I think, October, September, and we did section one and stepped into section two, and um, that was January, February, that, you know, six months ago. I, there's a whole lot that's happened in the last six months, isn't there? A lot has gone on, and we finished up the parables just before the, the lockdown um, in March, and so that was the second section, and here we are into the third section. There's, there's like 43 parables from Jesus in the New Testament, and we broke them down into four sections of 10 or 11. And so you, you'll find that in this third section, there's like 10 or 11 parables in your booklet. If you didn't pick one up, there's some in the atrium in the back. They look just like this, the little brown cover on them. Um, for small groups, you'd be interested to know that if you engage in that and you're in a small group, there's questions related to small groups and discussion guides inside the parable book. These are free, and if you're watching online and you can't get to church, we're more than happy to mail it to you or you can download it. So let us know. Call the office. We'd be happy to send one off to you. Well, if you're together with me, you're in Luke chapter 10, and you'll also see the verses up on the screen. And here's a principle as we work through the parables. Understanding the parables really requires the discipline of dedicated time. You have to be willing to slow down, and maybe part of your prayer right now is just uh, throw a prayer up to God and say, God, would you just slow me down and help me to be patient, especially with the one that we're looking at right now, because this one is so familiar. And so you might have to ask God, give me patience because I really know this story and I'm tempted to rush ahead, but I encourage you to ask God to slow you down. In our first section, when we were working in this in the fall, we discovered the principle of parables is that God uses parables in ancient history just the same way he uses them now. He consistently uses them to describe his kingdom. He consistently uses them to describe eternity And he consistently uses them to describe his nature and character. And along the way, while using the parables, he sets a standard of expected behavior for those who belong to him. 
So if you're new to church, I'll help you understand that as we work through that this morning. But those are the three principles coming out of these parables, which are essentially stories. Functionally, we've learned this Greek word that you'll see on the screen. If you've used the word parable throughout your life, you've spoken Greek because it comes right from the Greek language. It sounds just like it looks, this word parable. And you see what it is. It's a placing beside or a comparison. Here's the big idea with a parable. You take something physical Uh, something that's part of our world, and you lay it alongside something that's spiritual in order to draw out the comparison. And Jesus is the master at that, putting something physical alongside something spiritual in order to drive home the point. And he uses them a lot, like a lot, a lot. 30% of his conversations throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, are parable conversations in which he explains the kingdom of God. He explains God's nature and character. He explains eternity. And we'll really dig into that throughout the summer. And this morning, he sets a standard to help us understand this concept of a parable. Here's the, besides the fact that he does it 30% of the time, let me just show you an example. Maybe this will refresh your memory from Matthew 13 too. And large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach, and he spoke many things to them in parables. That one ring a bell with you from back in January? You think back pre-COVID, I know it was a different world at that time, and, and Jesus did this constantly. That time he's using a boat for a pulpit, and we use that to launch into a bunch of parables. I would expect if we did a quick survey right now this morning of, of New Hope and just did a hands-up thing and ask how familiar are you with the parable that we're going to look at this morning, nearly every hand in the auditorium would go up if I said how familiar are you with the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's perhaps one of the most famous in the world. We have hospitals named after the Samaritan. We have meal programs named after the Samaritan. There's mission works called Samaritan's Purse named after the Samaritan. It became a really, really famous story, and so people in Western culture especially know that to the degree that this is my fear that we're tempted to tune it out, and that's why I said you gotta pray, God, would you slow me down? Help me to dedicate the decision of time to this because I'm tempted in my human nature to tune it out I want you to fight against that this morning. Let me set up the story for you. Jesus is in northern Sea of Galilee region. It's the final year before his life ends. More specifically, it's actually getting down to the final six months of his life before the crucifixion. He's been in Capernaum, which is on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, and now instead of going straight down to Jerusalem, he takes the last six months of his life and he swings around to the east side of the Sea of Galilee and begins working down through what's known as Judea. The region of Galilee has been blanketed with the message of Christ. Now he's making his way through Judea so that they would hear the same information that he shared with the Galileans. He wants everybody to hear the message, but before entering into Jerusalem, he's going to stop, he's going to take this six-month journey, and he's going to stop, and he's going to heal people, and he's going to teach people, and he's going to serve people, all about explaining the kingdom of God. And on one particular day, a lawyer shows up while he's on the east side in the Judean region, and this particular lawyer is an expert in the law, and he has one thing on his mind. The one thing is he wants to discredit Jesus. He's very intent on doing that. And that's how this starts out in Luke chapter 10. And you'll see it in verse 25 up on the screen. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, 
teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, mind you, this question is like going to Dr. Edwin Hubble and saying, Dr. Hubble, have you ever looked at the moon? You know who Dr. Hubble is, right? He's got like a really giant space scope in space named after him called the Hubble Space Scope. It's like a two plus two question. This is a really, really elementary question to be asking the Son of God. But he's got one thing on his mind. He wants to set Jesus up. So this lawyer is literally asking Jesus, teacher, how righteous do you have to be to get into the kingdom? Now, it's a great question. And it's probably the question that's on most people's minds at some point in their life, maybe multiple times on their life. Because we all feel the pull of eternity Ecclesiastes 3 says God sets the thought of eternity in everyone's hearts and he's pulling at our hearts, Ecclesiastes 3.11. So it's a great question, but the motive is not great. He wants to use all of his prowess as an intellectual. He wants to use all his smarts as a lawyer to see if he can trap Jesus. He thinks he's smart enough to give Jesus an exam. Now, what's going on in the story is you're meeting someone who's part of the elite ruling class. He's, you're getting an inside look into what they're thinking about Jesus, and they think that Jesus is a target, that if they send a really smart guy out to talk with him, that perhaps they can take him out. We want to eliminate him. Keep that in mind as you think about this. This, this lawyer has the privilege of talking about eternal life with the one who is eternal life, but his object is to set Jesus up. So as you read the story, you shouldn't confuse his question with an attempt to obtain salvation. That's not why he's asking this question. In, in other words, he's not asking how to be forgiven. He doesn't think he has any sin because he's a scribe. He's an expert in the law. And if the lawyers of that time were good at anything, it was keeping fastidiously the law. They, they never wanted to break the law. They kept every single one of the laws. They obeyed it to the nth degree. And so that's the mindset of the scribe. Therefore, he's very self-righteous, and therefore, he doesn't think he needs a savior. So put the pieces together of what's going on in the setting. When Jesus started preaching and teaching throughout all of Galilee and then moving into Judea, he had one specific message he wanted people to know. God so loves the world that he sent his son, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have what, church? Eternal life, right? You know the answer to this. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And, and Jesus hasn't made that a secret. He's making it really common knowledge. He's letting everybody know that. His entire mission has been about eternal life and the kingdom of God. And it's not secretive. He even shares it with Nicodemus in a nighttime conversation in John chapter 3. Now, put that piece together with this reality. The scribes believe in eternal life. They want heaven they want to dwell there, and they believe they know the answer to how you get there. They believe that the Old Testament holds the answer to that question. So how do you assemble what the scribes know about the law and what Jesus is saying about believing in him? How do you put those two pieces together about what Jesus is preaching and about what the Old Testament says? Follow with me in the story, verse 26. And he, meaning Jesus, said to him, what is written in the law, meaning the Old Testament? How does it read to you? 
Uh, these questions about eternal life pop up regularly in the first century, especially among the, the leaders of Israel. They would spend hours, countless hours, debating the finer points of the law and talking about eternal life. It was very common in the first century. And it was also common in the first century to have what they called the art of Jewish questioning. Uh, traditional art would go like this. Someone would approach with a question and someone else would retort with a question. They, they wouldn't answer the question. They would go back and forth trying to get to the heart of what the question is. So Jesus sets him up by not responding to his question by saying, how do you read it? In other words, he's inviting this man to share his personal interpretation. Just as a side note, church, I personally like to model that in my life. When people come to me with questions, perhaps you would practice this too. It's, I learned it from Jesus. When people approach me with questions and they, they want to ask something theological about what they're seeing and maybe they can't make sense of it, I usually will respond back with, how do you read it? How do you understand it? Now, sometimes people will say to me, well, I don't know, that's why I came to you, and I get that, but most times what you find underneath that is there's a, another question behind the question, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He, he wants to, this guy to reveal his heart, to show what he's really thinking. Verse 27, this is how this man responds. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and notice that next word, and. It's a really important and because it's the beginning of another verse. And your neighbor is yourself. Now, if you grew up in church, chances are really good. You know that what he's doing here is he's quoting Old Testament law. And that's exactly what you expect the lawyer to do. The lawyer goes to the law. So he begins quoting the law because that's what's on the front of his mind. He knows the law has the answer to the question about eternal life. So Dr. Luke is recording that he's responding with two Old Testament passages here. And he's combined it into one single command. He's quoted Deuteronomy 6, which is known as the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. But then he links Leviticus 19 with it. And your neighbor is yourself they were required to quote that twice a day, morning and evening. Everybody who lived in Israel had to quote the Shema and the, the commandments to love your neighbor as yourself, and they knew it incredibly well. So in essence, what's going on here is Jesus says, you're a lawyer, you know the law. What does the law say God requires of you? And the lawyer gives a precise answer. He's spot on. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. He's buried it down to these two elements because these passages were memorized from a really, really young age. It's rote memory, it's like drinking water, it's like going to Dr. Hubble and saying, have you ever looked at the moon, Dr. Hubble? Well, of course, he's an astronomer. Have you ever added two plus two? Well, of course, anybody can do that, a child can do that. Now, you can take the whole law of God and you can boil it down into two categories. The two categories would be this, how mankind relates to God, and how mankind relates to each other. That's the law of God. You can squeeze it down even further into the Ten Commandments. Half of the Ten Commandments are about man's relationship to God, and half of the Ten Commandments are about mankind's relationship to each other. Or you can boil it down even further than that, and you can say, the answer is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've got it really down to the finer points. And if you do that, 
If you do that perfectly, you don't need any rules because perfect love precludes rules. If our entire world loved God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind and all their strength, and we loved our neighbors as ourselves, we wouldn't need laws in the world because perfect love precludes all rules. So that's why Jesus responds this way. Jesus responds, if he performed those commandments perfectly, he said, you got it, you'd inherit eternal life. Watch this in verse 28. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Jesus is confirming, you want the fountain of youth? You want perpetual life? Luke 27 and Luke 28, that's the way to eternal life. And many Christians, especially those who know the message of grace, read that and they squirm and say, wait, 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 no, it's not about earning something. It's not about keeping rules. It's about grace. And it causes people to be conflicted when they read this and think, what's Jesus doing? Is this a moving bar here? Is there two different objectives going on? Uh, I want you to pay very close attention because this is a very theological conversation that's going on. That's why I encourage you not to just skim over this and think this is just a story about loving your neighbor. There's a lot of theological meat here when Jesus says, do this and you will live. The do this is a present imperative in the Greek language. What do we know about verbs? Verbs are action words. This is a verb that's a present imperative. Do this meaning continually. Keep on doing this over and over and do it as good tomorrow as you did today, if you did it perfectly today, do it tomorrow perfectly and next week, and you better have done it yesterday perfectly, do this and you will live. It's the burden of being a Christ follower. That's great that I might have loved my neighbor yesterday, but I gotta keep loving my neighbor just as well tomorrow. Even the verb love that's used here in this description in this verse, that's also a present imperative, meaning continually love God Continually worship with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, without ever a breach, without ever a violation. See what Jesus is doing here? He's insisting on perfection. He's saying if you do this perfectly, according to God's standard, then you've hit the qualification to enter the kingdom of God. And notice he didn't say know this, he said do this. Just a quick check of the auditorium right now. Just bear with me if you're watching online. Anybody here have that issue down pat? Anybody here loved your neighbor perfectly in the last week? How about, how about in the last six months? Anybody here loved your nation perfectly? What, what about when it came to being locked down by your government? How'd you do with that? What, what was that like? What kind of feelings and emotions did that evoke within you? Did you have perfect control of your tongue over the last three months? These are the things that Jesus is talking about. So at this point, this lawyer should have stopped and said, wait, wait, time out, Jesus. I can't do that. I can't love God perfectly all the time. I can't love the people that I'm in relationship with, my neighbors all the time as I love myself. Like yesterday I messed up and I, I can't do it tomorrow. I know that I'm gonna come short, but he doesn't stop. 
The lawyer doesn't stop there and say time out. He continues and he asks the next question, which confuses me. Why does he ask this question if he already knows the answer? And I've come to this conclusion. There's a huge difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. Watch his question. Verse 29, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, why does Dr. Luke record wishing to justify himself? Because this is a propensity of humans. We want to justify ourselves to each other. Jesus called people out on this in the first century. Look with me up on the screen, an example of this, Luke 16, 15. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. What's going on with this lawyer? He's looking for an escape clause. See, that's what, that's what a lawyer would do. He's a good lawyer. He wants to read the fine print, right? Did you ever notice when you're reading this story that he has conveniently jumped right over the God issue? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He, he didn't even touch that one. He goes to the neighbor issue. Why? Because he's a scribe, and scribes keep the law, and they keep it perfectly. So his mindset is, I'm good with God. I obey the law fastidiously. I do everything I'm supposed to. I don't break the law. So he goes right to the neighbor issue. Who's my neighbor? Because I've checked with my social group. I've checked with my small group, Jesus. I'm really good with loving my neighbors, my buddies need a golfing partner, man, I'm right there with them. So who's my neighbor? Well, here's the word that we looked at back in the fall, the word for neighbor, because we were on that on another parable, the word placeon. And the word placeon is someone who's near you, someone who's close by you. And in the context of the first century, they were thinking of their fellow countrymen. We talked about this in the fall when we did the parables. Who's my neighbor? The one who's near me, the one who's in the cubicle next to me at work, the one who's next to me in the line at the grocery store, when I'm at the gas station, when I'm at the hardware store, not just the person I geographically live next door to, but anybody who's in my world is my neighbor according to what you're going to see come out here. See, this is a very important distinction because neighbor for most Jews at this period of time, a neighbor was another Jew, a fellow countryman, not a Gentile and certainly not a Samaritan. I wouldn't want the Samaritan in their mindset. This interaction, this question sets the stage for what has become perhaps the most famous parable of all the parables. And Jesus tells a jarring story to show this lawyer that he has not perfectly kept the law. Let's dive into the story. It goes very quickly. Verse 30, Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, because Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level, Every time you leave Jerusalem, no matter what direction you're going to, you're always going down. So to leave Jerusalem is to go down to Jericho. Well, in the case of Jericho, it's actually 700 feet below Jerusalem. And the road between the two cities is pretty treacherous. It's about 17 miles apart, but along the way, there's dangerous cliffs, and they plunge 400 feet into crevasses, and these crevasses at the very bottom of them have boulders, lots of boulders and caves, 
It makes it a really great place for bandits to hang out and, and to wait for travelers who are not suspecting them. With the attack that happens on this road to this person, Jesus describes as especially vicious. They don't just take his wallet. They take everything he has, including his clothing. They take all that he has, and then they beat him so ferociously they, they leave him half dead so he's virtually naked in a ditch in the middle of nowhere with no help to get out and he's been pummeled. It's a desolate place. There's not much chance of somebody rescuing him. So obviously he's in desperate need for help and it could be a lot of time before somebody comes along and then Jesus drops a nugget and he introduces just a ray of hope that a rescuer has come. Go with me to the next part, verse 31. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. Yay, right? A descendant of Aaron has arrived. And if anybody knows the law about what you're supposed to do with your neighbor, it's the, the priest. If the pastor shows up, you're going to hope he's going to be the paragon of virtue. If anybody knows the Bible, it's going to be the pastor. It's going to be the priest. It's going to be this one in the story. Unfortunately, the brief window of hope closes just as quickly as it opened. And verse 31, part B, and when he saw him, chapter 10 of Luke, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. You would expect the priest of all people, the one who compels everybody in Israel to recite the Shema morning and evening, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And your neighbor, like yourself, that one, who compels the rest of the population to recite the Shema, you would expect that priest to rescue. There's been a lot of commentaries written, as you can imagine, over the last 2,000 years about this particular parable because it's so famous. One of the most famous commentaries is written by Augustine in which he, he just really took it off in a weird direction. Read about it someday yourself. But there's been multiple commentaries and some of the commentaries along the way have arrived at some conclusions that I just totally disagree with. The, the, one of the commentaries says that, well, the priest presumed that he was a dead man and he can't defile himself by touching a dead body and so therefore he's got to get on to his work. And, and others would say that he feared stopping because he might be a target himself. Or a third commentary said, well, he's obviously about his priestly duties. He's got to get to the temple to make sacrifices. He just doesn't have any time. Well, that's probably more likely, actually. It's probably much more like the time issue. But here's the reality. Nothing like that is implied in the story whatsoever. The motives of the priest are irrelevant. They don't play into this. He's a fictional character. Jesus isn't concerned about the motives of the priest. So don't waste your time on that. Don't get distracted with that. Watch the Levite. Verse 32, likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The Levites assisted priests. They couldn't make sacrifices themselves, but they were the ones who were like the right arm of the priest. They, they worked within the temple. They couldn't perform sacrifices, but... They know the regulations, they know the rules, they know what they're supposed to do, but he passes by on the other side and he behaves just like the priest. 
Will you you read between the lines here of what Jesus is saying? You've got two individuals who are part of the system. They work in the world of religion. They know religiosity. They know the rules. They, They know what to say. They know the Shema. And Jesus is saying, that doesn't do it. That doesn't get them in. What was the question that started the conversation? How do I inherit the kingdom of God? What does the law say? He quotes the law perfectly. So Jesus is showing them they don't measure up. They don't pass the test. The priest and the Levite, they're not automatically in. The test was to love God fully and to love your neighbor as yourself. So you got these people who are rule keepers who actually find themselves not measuring up to God's standard. Verse 33, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Historically, Jews despise Samaritans and vice versa. The Samaritans despise the Jews. It goes both ways. And so the very presence of a Samaritan coming into their world would trigger racism to a degree which was really, really ugly. It brought it out so much so that they didn't even find themselves being aware of it because they were so used to it. Here's why. In an ancient world, pedigree and privilege rule the day. And pedigree and privilege determine who gets what. And Samaritans had neither. They had no pedigree. They had no privilege. They were treated as the dogs. What's going on here? Just bear with me because I asked you to be patient as we work through the parables. So let me help you understand why the visceral reaction. In about 700 B.C., the nation of Israel divided into two. There was civil war. And among those who followed the 10 tribes of the northern tribes, they became what's known as Israel. And of those who followed the two tribes of the southern kingdom, they became known as what is known as Judah. Well, the Assyrian Empire was very powerful in about 726 BC. They sweep in and they take control of Israel with the 10 northern tribes and they haul away all the elite rulers of Israel to Assyria. And in their place, they ship Gentiles, people of the Assyrian Empire, back into Israel. And people who were left over of the Jewish people in the northern kingdom begin intermarrying with all the Gentiles, the Assyrians coming in, and it produces a race known as the Samaritans. Now, mind you, at the same time, just in the southern kingdom, the two remaining tribes known as Judah, they were hauled off into captivity to Babylon. And they're there for 70 years. And then when they begin returning, they want to rebuild the temple of God. Well, the Samaritans sign up and say, we want to help you. We want to sign on the dotted line. We want to help you rebuild the temple. And the Jews would have nothing to do with it. They didn't want half-breeds, impure people, being part of the building of God's temple. And so they said, no, we want nothing to do with you. This... Friction obviously built over a long period of time. It became incredibly ugly. And so great was the hate between the Jews and the Samaritans that Jesus' opponents could think of nothing worse to say to him 
than this curse against him. Aren't we right in saying that you're demon-possessed and you're a Samaritan? You might remember that, right? That comes from the book of John. Aren't we right in saying you're demon-possessed and you're a Samaritan? Jesus said, no, you're not right in that. I'm not demon-possessed and I'm not a Samaritan. That's the worst insult they could possibly give him. See, to a Jew, there's no such thing as a good Samaritan. So Jesus intentionally uses the Samaritan as the hero in order to demonstrate that being a neighbor is not a matter of race. So we find the Samaritan here in the story applying basic first aid. He's getting out the bandages. He's about to put the ointments on. He's going to administer it to his neighbor, and the guy has just asked the question, who's my neighbor? The Bible says it's the one who's near you, the one you, you might even bump into. It doesn't have to be just somebody geographically that lives in the house next to you. It could be in the cubicle next to you. That he has to put the man on his own donkey it is like lifting up this victim and putting him in the bed of your pickup truck to drive him to the nearest hospital or, or to the nearest hotel. And that's exactly what he does. The condition is so desperate that to save his life, he has to take him someplace using his own donkey. So verse 35, it says, on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will return. And when, I w- when I return, I will repay you. Would you do that? Would you leave your visa card on the counter? and tell the hotel staff, go ahead and spend whatever you need to. Go ahead, take my visa card and just run up the limit as high as you need to. Give him whatever he needs. And if that's not enough, if you max out my credit card, I'll go ahead and pay anything additional after that. Would you do that? You see the standard that Jesus is setting here? This one has not only tended to him, he's using his own clothing. He's obviously had to make bandages for him. The guy's naked, so he has to dress him. He takes his own wine as a disinfectant. He takes his own oil to soothe the man's wounds, puts the man on his donkey, pays the innkeeper out of his own pocket, not to mention all the time that he has invested. And I think that's the one that catches most Americans short. It just happened to me this last week. As a matter of fact, a week ago today, I'm at home and Lori and I start talking about what would be good is like seven o'clock in the evening, six o'clock in the evening. We wanted something to eat and I said, I would love some ice cream. She said, well, we don't have any. You're gonna have to go get some. So I, I bolt out the door to go to the grocery store and I go get some Edie's butter pecan. Sounds good, doesn't it? It was, it was good in that moment. It's 92 degrees outside, right? So I go to the grocery store, I get my ice cream, I put it in the back seat of my car, and I'm driving home, and I see on the road ahead of me, car lights, brake lights starting to back up. And I can already see my fingers starting to tap on the steering wheel, because I'm thinking about that melting butter pecan sitting in the back seat. And sure enough, the cars come to a complete stop. I look off to the side of the road, on the shoulder of the road is an elderly woman, I'm, I'm guessing she's in her 80s, I, I'm thinking, and she's shuffling along, and it looks to me like she has bed slippers on, and she's making her way on the opposite side of the road, walking in towards traffic. 
Now, the cars that have stopped come to a complete stop, and I watch the front car get off into the grass, and the driver puts his window down and begins talking with her. And I'm not sure what the conversation is, but my fingers are tapping even faster on the steering wheel because I'm thinking, I want to get home with my melting ice cream. And only to see the door open on the car that's in front of me, the very front car, and the person get out of it and begin walking across the road is a person who attends New Hope Church. He's actually a person in my small group. And then I look in my mirror and I look behind me and I see another person running up the side of the road, beelining for this woman, trying to catch up to her. And as that person gets closer, I look and I see, that person's from New Hope Church also. And I feel this sense of conviction that God's bringing down on me. And my fingers are tapping and I'm thinking, I gotta get my ice cream home. And then I'm realizing in that moment, God put a neighbor right in my path to demonstrate once again, time, our agenda, takes over our mind. It takes over circumstances like this. This Samaritan has used his own possessions and his time, giving all of this, expecting nothing in return. This story is shocking to Jesus' listeners. They're hearing about this one who's literally the outcast, who's despised in Israel. The dogs of the community, they want nothing to do with. That one is actually closer to the requirements of the law than their own priest and their own Levites. That's why Jesus asked this question, verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Do you see what Jesus has just done, church? He's just forced the expert in the law to render a verdict. The one who knows the law inside and out now can't lean into the law. He has to actually go to the knowledge of the heart. And he's forcing him to render a verdict. Who is it that actually proved to be a neighbor? Jesus does this to focus not on the object of the neighborly love. Don't miss that. A lot of people miss that. He's focusing on the subject, the Samaritan, who made himself into neighborly action. This is the counter question to what's going on in 1029 and 1025. What do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of God? Who is my neighbor? Jesus is giving the counterpoint back. Verse 37, and he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Have you ever read this story before and noticed that he can't even say the word Samaritan? He does the most unnatural thing. He can't bring himself to say a Samaritan. He actually has to use the descriptor, which is the most unnatural thing to do. I I suppose if you're going to force me into it, it's the one who showed mercy toward him. A love of neighbor is, is not the macro thing here. It's the micro thing. We're going to get to the macro in just a moment to wrap this up. Catch this. In the micro, the love of the neighbor, Jesus is saying that had better transcend all your normal boundaries. All your normal boundaries of race, of nationality, of religion, of economic status, of financial status, of educational status. Your love of neighbor has to transcend all of that because it's a measuring rod for your behavior in how you respond to God. You love God? You say you love God? How are you doing with your neighbor? 
So what Jesus is doing is taking us back to this original question. What must I do to inherit? Chapter 10, verse 37, part B. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. I told you there's two elements going on here. You've got the micro. And you notice Jesus didn't say, know this, Mr. Intellectual. Get this in your head, Mr. Smart Guy Lawyer. He didn't say, know this. He said, do this. It's a present imperative, as you might have guessed. It's a verb. Get out there and do it and keep doing it and do it over and over and over and over. Do this. And Jesus doesn't supply us with information to whom I should help. Rather, he lays the expectation that I should behave as one who does help. So it's not fresh knowledge the lawyer needs. It's a fresh heart that the lawyer needs. Now that's the micro. Here's the macro. And this is what most people miss when they look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. They think it's all about loving the neighbor. That's the micro. That's certainly important, but here's the macro. What was the lawyer's big question? What do I have to do to get eternal life? Jesus' response, be perfect. Be perfect. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Be perfect and then you've got it nailed down. Be perfect towards everyone and be perfect to God. Then you will inherit eternal life. Meaning you better have done it since birth all the way through your very last breath on this planet. Which means God's standard of righteousness, God's perfect standard of righteousness is the requirement for entrance into the kingdom. So the law requires what? The law requires that you love God with all your hearts, with all your mind, with all your soul, and you love your neighbor as yourself. You obey it perfectly without the smallest defect throughout your entire life and you've nailed it. Whoever did that, who of us ever could say we did that? Well, no one except one. Jesus is the only one that lived his entire life on this planet and never committed sin. All these things that we've just discussed, they're completely tied up in that thought. He always loved every neighbor perfectly. He always loves God perfectly. He never failed in any of these things. There's only one who did that because the rest of us, we all fall short of the glory of God. Now let's be sure to remember, we're getting ready to leave. I know our mindset is there. Be sure to remember this. This lawyer, as smug as he might have been, was a real human. He's not part of the story. He's not the fictional character, the parable. It's a real individual and this story would leave him speechless because now he realizes the very law that he thought perfected him, if I kept every single detail perfectly, the very law that he revered that he thought would save him is the very law that condemns him because he can't love God perfectly from birth to death. You can't love every neighbor perfectly from birth to death. Hence, the Bible says in Romans 3, no flesh can be justified by the law. We all fall short of the glory of God. You see what Jesus has done in the most masterful way? 
he's using the tension of this conversation in a parable to illustrate that this perfect righteousness, it has to come from God because you can't get it on your own. It has to be a gift of God. And that's why the writers of the New Testament said you have to be saved by grace through faith. It's a gift from God, not that you could boast yourself. And that's what Jesus is driving at in this parable. He's completely focused on deconstructing this idea that righteousness can be earned by good works. That's what you're going to see in the next 10 parables as he begins telling more and more stories. So that means doing life with God is not just about showing up for church on Sunday morning. It's not about good religious behavior. It's not about being perfect in your behavior towards other people even or, or how often you are good to other people because you can't do enough of it. It means doing life with God is not just about Sunday morning. To enter heaven, you have to attain God's level of righteousness. In order to have that level of righteousness, you have to have Jesus Christ as your savior. Amen? You don't sound convinced. You have to have Jesus Christ as your savior. Say it even though you have mask on. Say amen loud. That's the only way you get that level of righteousness is by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, lest any one of us would boast because you can't do it. I'm gonna pray that God would seal these words in your heart as you go through the week. You're gonna take the week on right now. You're gonna run into people in various environments. Measure yourself against this parable. Let's pray. God, I thank you for what you have done. You have slowed us down through the, the use of the music, through the time of prayer to put ourselves in this place where you could speak to us. I pray, Father, that these things would not quickly escape from our mind, but rather this afternoon and tomorrow and Wednesday and Saturday, as prone as we are to forget as humans, that you will haunt us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, stay with us, Father. And in prick at our minds to remind us of the standard that you set. You expect this behavior out of us, but at the same time that we would walk in grace towards others and in humility towards you, Father, that we would indeed be people who would love you with our heart and our soul and our mind. Thank you, God, for speaking. Thank you for speaking through your word. I pray your blessing upon our church right now for the individuals who have gathered here physically and those who are watching at home. Bless our efforts this week, Father, and use us mightily in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.